Welcome to CinemaScope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to CinemaScope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to CinemaScope today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. I'm pushing the button. No, you don't know. You don't know what I've been through. You don't... You just use your words and you just just <laughs> throw them out and they don't you don't that's not a it's not a thing. <laughs> okay man, hey, whatever, whatever. That's cool. It's called the bacon explosion. It looked like some sort of explosion that is going on in you, do you now. To, do you want me to tell you, do you want me to just tell you a little bit about it if you didn't see the the uh the trailer? Here's a nine-minute uh, red band trailer. Of, <laughs> That's a red band, even of of me and my 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 friend Ted uh, making 
the uh, bacon the bacon bomb. And so it starts with a pound and a half of uh, nice thin cut apple wood smoked bacon uh, woven in a mat like a lattice mm-hmm. that's about a foot by a foot and a half. Uh, kind of rectangle. And on top of that, you take three pounds of, and we did a mixture of Italian sausage. Actually, first we put a a, a cherry wood pork uh, rub, like a powdered rub on the bacon. And then we put three pounds, we spread out three pounds of um, a mix of Italian sausage. And um, uh, we did just sausage and ground beef. And, and we put more rub and some barbecue sauce on top of that. And then you take the whole thing and you roll it like a Yule log, Right, mm-hmm. you're familiar with that tradition. Oh yeah, Yule log rolling, and um, and from there, you so then you tuck the ends in, and it's this perfect like loaf of of like knitted loaf of of meat. It's almost as if we uh, we took uh, the all of the parts of of the pig and we remade a pig out of it <laughs> in just a different way. We repurposed all of the parts of, of it. Was it's horrible with and some cow we, mixed in, and then we covered it with. <laughs> That's horrible. We covered it with uh, with brown sugar, and then you cook it low and slow. And you, on on uh, on his uh, uh, Ted happens to have a a very fine uh, grill, and we cooked it uh, low and slow for several hours. And when it comes out, it's this like beautiful, like just deep mesquite red, um, crisp on the outside, fantastic on the inside sausage on the inside and you just slice it real thin and you put it on sandwiches or you just eat the whole thing whole. We didn't, we, we shared, but it's (laughs) the, it's the single best thing that I think I've ever seen done or partaken in, uh, with meat. And I've done, I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. I've done a lot of things with meat, things that I don't (laughs) particularly talk about. That's fantastic. I want to try it. It's so good. It's so good. This is once you've uh, you just there's not a thing and it's it was getting somebody said on Twitter said that he's he's actually eaten it and it was terrible it's the worst thing he ever did I'm t- that he did it wrong I I call that man out I don't know who it is but I call him and he did it wrong this was a fantastic experience meat wow. experience and to all Big you vegetarians out there and vegans I'm sorry that I just offended you I hope I didn't lose I didn't lose us any any regular listeners because of the horrible meatography that I I took part in this weekend. It's it's like eating a heart attack. I don't know. It's 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 paleo, right? <laughs> it's totally. It's to isn't it? It's like you're supposed to eat a lot of meat on paleo, isn't that true? No, or no, you're not supposed to cook. It's like raw foods. I have no idea. I didn't eat about. it raw. I did not eat it raw. I guarantee you. I hope not. Uh, credit credit for this goes to Patty Long's. Uh, it's a Chicago bar that apparently made this thing popular about three years ago, and and uh, they did the good deed. I consider it a good deed of actually uh, sharing the process uh, with the world through Food Network. And I will tell you where I found this. I was actually on the treadmill at the gym. I was on the elliptical. <laughs> And I, I was watching, good place to do research. For I was watching. Like I was watching the Food Network, and what comes up? But this guy's search for the best bacon dishes in America. It's at Extreme. I don't know Extreme Kitchen. I or I just ate something twice the size of my head. Show and this was one of, and it happens to be twice the size of your head when you're finished with it. It's wow. great. You know. You know. Merry who would Christmas. Have been a fan, and if he were here today, may have joined you. 
Who? Tell me. Elvis. <laughs> the, the man loved baloney. He loved. He not, loved his. He was at one of a list of people his, that I could come uh, up meat with. Meat that's terrible for you, but he Who? loved it. I wonder. You know, I thought I didn't know where you were going to go. Milton Berle. No. Um, who else? <laughs> Judge Reinhold. Uh, no. Go. Oh, you know, that's what we need to do. We've been planning this calendar for for the year. We've got all of our movies all set up, and uh, nowhere in them is a Judge Reinhold uh, film. Do well, you know that? we We've clearly got 50, need to go back and start fifty two weeks, and we have no Judge Reinhold. I think we should do. I think we should do a whole series of <laughs> Judge Reinhold and. Uh, Mini driver crossover. <laughs> that's a big list. <laughs> I'm not. I, I'm not even sure that that's a list. But we should. Yeah. We should start the lobby. <laughs> let's let's send letters to both of their agents oh, and petition them. I. We guarantee to... you a, a <laughs> podcast about that movie. We will. Together. We will podcast about that movie two years at least after its release. <laughs> Uh, how are you, Andy? How was how was your uh, festivity? I'm sure you had a festivity over the weekend. It was festive. Yeah. Did you ring Actually, in the new it wasn't year? Festive. Did you stay up till midnight? I, I, I Did lied. you stay up it till really midnight? Really wasn't. I was trying to make it sound better than it was. Did you stay up till midnight? <laughs> it it ended up being uh, my son got really sick and had a bad fever, so we scrapped our plans to go out with our friends. And then later in the evening, my daughter started feeling sick, and then my wife started feeling sick. So they were all in bed by ten o'clock. So I enjoyed uh, ringing in the new year, uh, watching American uh, uh, American. What's it called? American Gothic. I just totally blanked on the name. Whatever that show is that I'm watching. American Horror Story. Horror Story. Yeah. Thank you. Whoa. American Horror Story. I don't even know. That's that's how. That's really bad. Meaningful it was to me. I'm sorry. But I'm it really was relaxing, sorry. so you know you can't go, you can't argue with a relaxing ringing in of the new year. I guess that's the truth. It's that's not like truth. I was, you know, getting a ticket or anything. Oh, I get you know I got pulled over in my own driveway the other day. That's a really bad driveway. because I didn't I didn't <laughs> I I didn't use my turn signal to turn into the driveway. Oh, and I got pulled over my own driveway. That's like a little bit overzealous police work. I appreciate everything they do. I really do. But that may be a, a, a been a little bit overzealous. They uh, are really trying to meet their quota if they're pulling people over as they pull into their driveway. They didn't even get a ticket. That can't be part of the quota. Pull people over and let them go. What kind of police work is that? Was he like staked out behind like some, <laughs> some trash cans or something? I, I, don't, I don't know. I didn't even see People coming into the neighborhood? I didn't even see where he came from. For all I know, he'd been following me for miles wow all right should we talk about a trailer oh we should do that you need to do the uh details about the show where can you do the thing are you ready do you have it all ready well people can find me at uh on twitter at soda creek film and they can find me at uh over on facebook at soda creek film and they can find us on the next reel of facebook page and they can also <laughs> they can also email us at show at the next and uh, our phone number they can give us a call and leave us a message and uh, we just might read it on the air or, or play it on the air excuse me the the phone number is 657201real that's 657201-7335. well done now I, you have one more thing that you need to say this was part of our new year plan 
and you get to go first. Do you remember what it was? A little surprise? No, see, this is why we talk about the plan before we start recording. <laughs> you emailed me, and you now say we have to do this thing every week because somebody wrote in, and they wrote you and said that they had they had to stop listening to, to an episode because we were spoiling it. Yeah, they were, well, they, they just wanted to know where we stood on spoilers. Right, we because, stand uh, firm on spoilers. They, they don't like listening to shows that have big spoilers pop up. And so they wanted to uh, get a sense as to where we were with the spoiler issue. And since we do tend to kind of, you know, cover films all the way from beginning to end, we, we figured that we should start uh, talking about it and, uh, and make sure people are aware. So and, there you have uh, it. And, and it's, it's so, yeah, yeah. Welcome to the next reel, everybody. <laughs> we will spoil this film. That's right. That's our platform. That's right, yes. I'm going to change the tagline on the website. <laughs> Come here. The next reel. We will spoil your movie. That's right. You know, I've decided uh, this evening uh, in honor of, uh, we're in the middle of our Catherine Bigelow. We're going to start the trailers in a minute, but I just want to, I just want to, uh, I, I've decided that I'm going to um, celebrate in honor of our Catherine Bigelow, Catherine Bigelow series. I'm going to read just at random throughout the conversation uh, Catherine Big Bigelow's tweets. Fantastic. Okay? All right. So I, I'd like to read the first twi uh, tweet from Catherine Bigelow. How long has she been tweeting now? Oh, uh, since um, August uh 20th 2011 and okay. so, so, uh, so she's had a, she's had a decent amount of time to get some tweets in she has all right and so this uh from this is a quote from the great uh, uh american director Catherine bigelow october 9 2011 such a beautiful day today so grateful how was everyone's day wow that was Catherine bigelow October 9th, 2011. Wow. She's a poet. <laughs> I, I, I didn't know. No I, well. no, I think that you're going to see, uh, as, we, as we peel back the, uh, the layers of the Catherine Bigelow Twitter onion, you're going to see not only the depths that we can plumb uh, Catherine Bigelow's um, you know, professional work that, that is laid out bare for us in Twitter, uh, but also the real... Uh, sort of uh, subtle influence that Twitter has had on uh, the culture of cinema. So, mm. what trailer would you like to talk about this evening? This evening, I wanted to talk about The Place Beyond the Pines, a new uh, oh. trailer for a crime drama film uh, directed by Derek C. in France, who, uh, who went to school in Boulder. Oh, am I? This is one I'm supposed to know, right? Or not? Yeah, we, we, I, I told you. Yeah, yeah, it. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. <laughs> Minutes before we started talking, that's did right. You watch no, no, I, I didn't. Were... I didn't actually do that. So yeah, you're, yeah. you're gonna have to film me. You know what I did? I watched the trailers I'd already seen today, and while oh, you, you were, while you again. were watching that's... them, yeah, that was good. So oh, tell yeah. me what you think. Yeah, you know, uh, Derek C. in France uh, did Blue Valentine before this, which was one of the most depressing films about a relationship that you could uh, watch. It really, really is a downer, but it was a powerful film, uh, great performances by uh, Ryan Gosling and Michelle Williams in that one. This one also has Ryan Gosling, as well as Bradley Cooper, um, who else is in it, uh, Ray Liotta and Eva Mendez. 
and uh, and some other people. I think Rose Byrne is in it. Uh, looks like a really interesting uh, crime story that deals with fa- father-son relationships, uh, both Ryan Gosling, the criminal, and uh, Bradley Cooper, the cop, have uh, have young children and are kind of dealing with their careers and the the decisions that they make and everything. It looks like a really great, great film, and I'm very excited to watch it. Excellent. I, too, am excited to watch it. I'm going to watch the trailer as a result of, of that uh, exquisite <laughs> Excellent. Uh, review of the trailer. Um, I, I'm actually, I guess I'm a little bit surprised that you picked that one. Uh, no, no, totally. Even totally after not, you, you saw, shouldn't be. I no, I mean I'm glad. I'm not. No, it's no offense, man. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, wow, wound up. No, uh, I yeah. just feel like you just. We just watched um, uh, Dead Man Down. You had your list of trailers, and I thought I didn't want to intrude. No, no, no. I, I this was had you done this, I would have done something else because you know I'm excited about other movies. But I'm going to say uh, I like Dead Man Down. But I think uh, it, you know I'm torn between the um, the the actual trailer of Dead Man Down or the trailer of the trailer Dead Man <laughs> Down, which I think both of them really uh, have uh, you know show some real um, well, it's a real twist to have that sort of back to back trailer. If you watch it on apple.com uh, slash trailers, you will see what I'm talking about. It's a trailer with a trailer. This is the uh, Niels Arden Opleff um, uh, film. It's an, uh, uh, an English language film, and I say that because the last uh, film you likely know Niels Arden Opleff uh, from is the, uh, is the fantastic original Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. This yeah. film, Dead Man Down, stars Colin Farrell, Numi Rapace, Dominic Cooper, and uh, it looks like a funky kind of uh, a twisted uh, sort of a comic assassins beget assassins film uh, with a lot of things that blow up and um, really, you know, really poor comedy, uh, <laughs> but a lot of great action. So it looks great. And I, uh, you know, it actually looks incredibly compelling. Uh, I've watched it three or four times today, and, and um, I think it looks great. Uh, well, I'm glad that Niels Arden Oplev was able to, uh, <laughs> you, you kind of have to throw in a lot of umlaut That's when totally you dead, say that right. name. Uh, I'm glad he was able to, uh, you know, get an uh, you know, English language film out of his uh, Dragon Tattoo film. Yeah, yeah. So uh, hopefully it'll help him kind of catapult and make a career for himself over here although i'm sure he's also having a great career over in sweden and uh, there's nothing wrong with that <laughs> there's nothing <laughs> the wrong next hollywood. with that <laughs> that there's is hollywood true. bollywood and then uh, i don't you have to throw something with umlauts in there that's right well it's uh, it, it's fascinating to see uh, to sort of watch this I, he did uh you know after since the girl with the dragon tattoo all he's done are, are tv sh- uh, tv shows miniseries he did he did the uh obviously the the third uh, i don't know what the translation is monsom hatar kvinor uh men who hate women that was the that was the original swedish title of the was that the first or second uh millennium film I don't know. It's all in uh, Swedish, yeah. but anyway, in 2010 they did that originally as a, a TV series, yeah. um, and so what we saw as uh, Netflix films was, uh, you know, two parts of those were done in as TV series originally, and then he did a couple of um, uh, Unforgettable, 
Uh, he did the pilot in two episodes of the 2011 series Unforgettable, which was another um, uh, that was another U.S. show. That was a CBS series. Would you say it was forgettable? <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm not going to say. I just will say I had to look it up. Yes, yes. Uh, I, I did too with Poppy. Uh, yeah, Poppy. Poppy Montgomery. Montgomery. So anyway, it looks you know it's good to see him do this movie, and it looks like a big movie, and that's that's I like that a lot. Uh, it looks great, and I'm glad to see. Uh, you know, I was really disappointed when. Um, uh, see now, I've closed the uh, closed the stupid window. Ah, uh, I was really disappointed when War Machine uh, switched. Dominic, uh, what's his name? I just read his name. Come on, Cooper. Yeah, when he left and, uh, uh, you know, Iron Man. Mm-hmm. I really liked him. It's Iron Man. I wanted him to put on the War Machine suit in the second one, and they switched him out. I don't know what happened in Iron Man 2. Oh, you're not meaning... Uh, uh, you're meaning um, uh, Terrence Howard. Right, right, right. Terrence Howard. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He, uh, he was... Uh, his ego got the best of him is his- what happened. And uh, he was uh, wanting a lot more money, and was was uh, uh, want, felt like he needed to be getting a salary equal to uh, uh, Robert Downey Jr. Something like that. That's that's kind of the long and the short of what I heard. But I heard Terrence Howard's uh, attitude and uh, ego kind of killed his opportunity to be in Seriously? Iron Man, any of the subsequent Iron Man films. So, by extension, you are telling me that Don Cheadle costs less than Terrence Howard. I guess so. Or they got greater value. The value proposition, the Don Cheadle value proposition uh, was higher. Mm -hmm. I mean, I like the Cheadle. Don't get me wrong, please. No, he's great. He's great. I I mean, they're both great. I love Hustle and Flow. Terrence Howard is a fantastic actor. He is a fantastic actor. So, clearly, I don't know. I don't know how much to buy into the, the stories... Uh, but that is kind of what I heard, that uh, there were those issues. So. All right. Well, uh, needless to say, uh, go check out this film uh, uh, with uh, Terrence Howard. Yes. He's, he's not a good guy in this film. He's not a good guy at all. No, he doesn't look like he's going to be a nice one. And we're going to dump the other uh, trailers that we find interesting this week. We're going to dump those on the web. Uh, and uh, you can find those trailers at thenextreel.com slash blog. And we encourage you to do so. Definitely. All right. Let's jump it. Uh, and so uh, I would like to say uh, we're going to jump forward uh, in time a couple of months to December 11th, 2011. Again, this is Catherine Bigelow. How was everyone's day? That was Catherine Bigelow, December 11th, 2011. <laughs> she really is concerned about the masses. It's uh, it really is. It really shows kind of the well, and that's that kind of leads us into this film, uh, don't you think? We're talking about uh, 2008's uh, The Hurt Locker. Yeah, 2008, 2009 is when it was really widely released. It did play in festivals in 2008, but 2009 is when it was officially released in the U.S. and hence that's when it um, was uh, receiving Oscars. I like to go with the initial release, as you know. Yeah. Like Zero Dark Thirty, the initial release is when it's going to be getting Oscars. But that was an actual release. Uh, you d- Don't even. It wasn't. The Hurt Locker was not released in 2008. It played at film festivals in 2008. There's a difference. It doesn't count. Ask somebody who saw it at that film festival. 
if they th- if they actually thought it had released. Well, they would be wrong. <laughs> the Academy is very particular. You have to play in a theater in New York and a theater in L.A. for one week <laughs> before the end of the year, at, at a minimum, in order to be eligible for an Oscar, it, except for foreign language films, which have their own funky rules. But that's right. that's basically... Uh, how it works. So playing at a film festival doesn't count. All right. Well, I'll let it slide this time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Catherine, Uh, thanks you. Let's, uh, so last week we started with Strange Days. Neither of us, I think, I think it's safe to say neither of us had a really positive uh, review of Strange Days, correct? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, I do think it has, you know, a couple things that I like, uh, but that's, yeah, that's it. So the bar I don't, was. I don't need to watch the whole movie again to ever no. enjoy those couple things. No, <laughs> right. The bar was set at a couple of things. Would you say that the Hurt Locker redeemed uh, the performance of Strange Days by delivering more than a couple of things? Uh, oh yes. That you liked. I I'm very excited to hear what you liked about this film. I I, I just everything. I mean, it's it's a complete 180 from from the direction she really had been going with everything up until uh, now. And maybe the film um, right after Strange Days, she did another film called The Weight of Water, which I understand is kind of a a very small uh, film that uh, wasn't, it it was released in 2002 in the U.S. Sean Penn, Elizabeth Hurley, Sarah Polly, Josh Lucas, Catherine McCormick. Uh, It's kind of a very small, almost independent film. and, And that I think was kind of the, a bit of the turning point for her to seem like she was looking for something else. But, um, but then she went back to K-19, the Widowmaker, which kind of was going back to her, her action roots that she had been doing up until that point. When the Hurt Locker uh, came out, I think it was a, a quite a surprise, definitely for me. I mean, it, it was uh, K-19, the Widowmaker, uh, and The Weight of Water both came out, were released in 2002 in the U.S. The Hurt Locker was released in 2009. So there's a big chunk of time between these uh, these films. And it seemed to me that she really reevaluated what she was looking uh, to do in her career as a filmmaker. I don't know if that's true, but that's just the the sense that I get. Because the films that she had been doing were very... Um, action oriented and had just like these kind of over the top, uh, you know, just this action, uh, you know, style to it. Uh, Blue Steel, Point Break, Strange Days, and Near Dark, uh, even K-19, The Widowmaker. And then The Hurt Locker comes along and it it kind of was, it definitely still is an action uh, film, although I'd say it's almost more of a war drama with some action in it. But it almost completely dismissed all of the action stereotypes that she had been, um, you could say, burdened with in her other films. Or or perhaps you could say they were the strengths of those films, depending on, on your take on them. I know Point Break certainly has its, its fans, but uh, The Hurt Locker really dismissed those types. And she's actually even talked about how she really wanted to uh, focus on telling a true story and telling a story that actually dealt with real people in a real situation and never uh, had to rely on uh, any of those tropes that, that make an action film what it is. And because of that, it's, this story came out of, uh, for me, it came out of nowhere of, you know, real 
modern day heroes in a, an ugly war situation and uh, you know the kind of the psychology of these people who who volunteer to serve in our military and it was a fascinating story i i really fell in love with it the first time i saw it and i've i've been a uh, you know a my my uh, uh little champion of it ever since i guess it's a great film it it is a a great film i it's a great film and it's uh, I find it interesting the way it uh, it kind of approaches the war through these three guys. Um, in in so many ways, this film and you know, check me if you totally didn't didn't feel this way, but I you know I I see this again as one of those films that is um, a, a serial. Right, each of these sort of little stories, these little events that come together and make this uh, this kind of overall package. Like there's a story arc that you can easily see broken up um, in in a way that that uh, uh, brings a broader tableau as a result of of looking at them sort of discreetly. You know, there's the um, and and I think that that makes uh, without this sort of large kind of uh, heavy-handed story arc like we get in, you know, in Strange Days where we saw three of them, uh, what we really have is um, this kind of unreal structural restraint uh, in a story that could otherwise have easily uh, called for great grandiosity. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, because it's a war film. Yeah. It's very easy. I, I, I think when people pair war film with action director it tends to turn into a Pearl Harbor right. or a a Rambo or something like that, where it's, you know, you've got this very kind of uh, macho hero coming in and kicking butt. And that seems to be kind of the sensibility that for whatever reason, people feel, ha you know, what you have to have when you pair that stuff together. Uh, I mean, certainly things have all, there's always been those war films that have looked more seriously at war, uh, you know, even going back all the way to like from here to eternity, but even like Saving Private Ryan and things like that. Mm -hmm. But there was something about this film that uh, I think just took it from even a, a little bit of a different perspective. And I, it, it felt so much more psychological. Yeah, I think that's really the the piece that I was uh, I was getting to, too, that um, that what we what we are seeing in, you know, uh, Renner's. Uh, character James, uh, what we're seeing particularly in the relationship between James and Sanborn, um, uh, and and how that relationship, the sort of roller coaster of that relationship, that that changes so dramatically uh, from um, you know one of of uh, great sort of frustration and conflict to uh, one of um, you know absolute team player um, construct. Uh, at you know over the course of a single day uh, is really fascinating to watch and and I think it was it was um, you know it was portrayed as as sort of big as this movie can be uh, in terms of the intensity of the events that that are sort of uncovering you know the 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 intensity of you know every single time he goes up against a bomb uh, James goes up against a bomb um, you know is handled actually with great delicacy 
that I found really powerful. Take, for example, the very first uh, scene, you know, where we lose uh, Guy Pierce. Uh, that's the the only sort of sequence we see Guy Pierce. He is the uh, the lead bomb tech in this uh, in this three man squad, and they are they have the bot, and the the robot is going out and discovers a, an uh, an IED on the side of the road. And at that point, we see uh, Guy Pierce put on the suit. And he goes out and he tries to defuse the bomb. And uh, as he's, you know, running away, they they see that there is, a, in fact, an insurgent, and and the bomb explodes. And and we lose Guy Pierce, and that's how we introduce Jeremy Renner. Then we don't see bombs explode very often. Yeah. Uh, it, and I think that is a that is of particular note to me that we see what could happen when the bombs go off. That it can be really bad, and you can lose a character that is. You know, you see Guy Pierce in the film, and you think, okay, this is going to be a Guy Pierce movie, mm-hmm. uh, and they off him right in the first five minutes, yeah. and and it changes the tone of things. Well, it lets you know right away, uh, you know, because he's he's so recognizable. Yeah. Nobody is safe. Nobody is safe. Right. The, these the stakes are way up here, and I thought that was really well done. That was really well done, and in in so far as you sort of feel betrayed. Uh, because you know, Guy Pierce is a—he's a good guy. I like watching then, the guy on screen. Yeah, I even and, and like watching. And then Jeremy Renner like comes in, and other than uh, you know bit parts in other films beforehand, he hadn't really had a lead role before this. I mean, this was really kind of his big thing. He had been in, uh, you know, twenty-eight weeks later, and the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, and. And, uh, you know, definitely in a good number of films, but always in kind of more supporting roles. This was really uh, his kind of breakout role. And when you all of a sudden replace Guy Pearce uh, with Jeremy Renner, it is a bit of a surprise. And uh, and you find yourself following a whole bunch of, of faces that are kind of familiar, but but aren't the stars that you're used to. And so it does kind of put you into a kind of a different state of mind when you're watching the film. No, it truly, it, it truly does. I, you know, I would add about Jeremy Renner. This is a, uh, you know, this, this hit me today as I was uh, reading up on the background of the film and, and uh, learned that one of the reasons that Catherine Bigelow um, uh, had cast him at this point was that she had seen his 2002 film Dahmer. Ah, uh, uh, yes. Where he played uh, Jeffrey Dahmer. And as it happens, uh, luck of, uh, you know, living in the future as we are, uh, it is available to stream on Netflix. So I uh, watched it on my phone uh, today. And <laughs> that... <laughs> um, he did great in that film. Good yeah. job playing a really... <laughs> creepy serial killer creepy guy oh creepy guy and and that movie made me reflect on on the you know some stories that you know maybe don't need to be made into movies ever <laughs> yeah, there definitely are some of those there definitely are <laughs> but but it was fascinating to watch because first of all he looks like a, you know a kid and it's very very uh, you know it's it, it's funny to see age on this guy because he ages young anyway uh right. but but he uh you know it was a, a very different sort of stature but to see him play this character that is so meek uh otherwise you know works kind of the the swing shift at a um uh you know at a chocolate factory and and uh, uh you know stalks people in the in the the clothing 
uh, stocks boys uh, in in the clothing department of of his local department store. I mean, it's just a really creepy uh, performance, and yet something in that performance um, sort of sparked uh, Bigelow to say that this guy could could play that level of uh, complexity uh, that he brought to uh, Dahmer's character in James. Uh, yeah. And it's it's even more interesting to go watch that movie after seeing, um, you know, Hurt Locker and, and watch his kind of evolution as an actor. It's, it, it's a, you know, it's pretty powerful stuff. Huh, interesting. I'll have to check that one out. Yeah, you, I mean, you know, watch a half sure. hour of it. Just give <laughs> it a half hour. No, no, no. But... Give it, give it a half hour. You don't even need to watch the watch it to the end. It's, but it's it, it's a it's an interesting um, film, and it, it, you know, Bruce Davidson uh, plays his dad. It's a, you know, they have a, a interesting kind of complex relationship. It's worth it's worth checking out. Oh well, just for streaming, just for I a few will. minutes, just for a few minutes. Yeah. In any case, uh, you know, my uh, to date, my favorite sort of water, modern war movie uh, is Three Kings. Uh, Which is a fantastic film. Right. Uh, that it seems to kind of get forgotten for some reason, but it is a really uh, amazing film that uh, David O. Russell made and uh, a very interesting look at the war, especially modern warfare. Right. Right. But what's interesting about The Three Kings in comparison to this one, and this is why I find myself having to really kind of stand back and think harder about um, uh, about um, uh, what movie are we talking about again? The Hurt Locker. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. I have like 800 tabs open. They all are. Uh. Anyway, the reason I have to sit and, and stop and think about The Hurt Locker is because of that sort of structural piece. In, in Three Kings, you know, we have this sort of caper that, that is kind of uh, overlaid on top of, of this war environment. And, and here, we don't really have that. Uh, and, and back to that touch of delicacy, what Bigelow allows us to do, and through sort of writer Mark Boll, uh, is, uh, uh, is really focus uh, so closely on these three guys— that really they could be anywhere that the the um, uh, but what they have done is allow this their location to be kind of the fourth member of the team and that just sort of it just really um it, it makes it such a rich um such a rich experience i think for me. well and that and that speaks to the interesting structure of the script that uh that um that we watch here in this film that Mark Bull wrote based on his experiences um, as an embedded journalist in the war, kind of watching all of this stuff and watching these these uh, bomb squads and 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 following them around, um, the script is really if you if you if you kind of break it down, it's not a typical you know structured Hollywood film. It's it's very much a it, almost an intimate character drama. You're following these characters, and they really are the ones driving things that happen in the plot more than uh, the story itself and, and the things that are happening in the story. Because if you watch the story, it's it's very sequential. It's very uh, situation-oriented. You go from one situation to the next situation to the next situation to the next situation. They aren't directly tied together. It's not like they're getting clues leading them to something. Sure, that ends up happening in the last act of the film, but it's not... Um, 
it's it's never really kind of a driving force across the entire story. It's always about the psychology of the characters and their relationships with each other, particularly, as you said, Sergeant James, Sergeant Sanborn, played by Anthony Mackie, and Specialist Eldridge, Eldridge played by Brian Garrity. I I think it's the second uh the second James bum uh diffusion, right? Is that the one where he picks up the cords and uh That's seven James' bombs? first one that, that we see first? him doing. Okay. After Guy Pierce's experience. Okay. So that's the that's the one that that allows us to really kind of cement the relationship between Sanborn and James and I think that that that's a uh that's an interesting one to take apart because first you you have him in the suit uh, he gears up. He's in the suit, and then he takes the suit off when he discovers the the. Um, oh, that was the car one. Right? Yeah, he that's takes the off car. The, that's the you're second talking one. About the, I'm talking about his second, second diffuser. That's the one I was talking about. Yeah. So that's the one in the car, and and he takes off the suit, uh, and it ends up being more important to the relationship there and the kind of the the conflict between these characters. Not that he actually dis- disarms the bomb. Right, that's a good thing, and the intensity, kind of the surface intensity, is uh, you know amped up because the bomb situation is there, and he manages to disarm it. Uh, but for their relationship, it's that he keeps distancing himself from the team, and that moment when he takes off his headset, his line of communication to these guys, he makes that transi- transition between team player and. Uh, lone kind of lone hunter and now his relationship is between it, it is strictly between him and the guy who made this bomb that he's now trying to to defeat uh, and that ends up being an incredible setup for the way these guys work together and end up finding themselves again uh, you know through the throughout the course of the film yeah and it, and the relationship between the three uh, primary guys that we're following is really it's it's a fascinating study because if you look at uh, James, uh, Jeremy Renner's character, he is a guy who, you know, we kind of get through the quote at the beginning of the film that says, the rush of battle is often a potent and lethal addiction for war is a drug. Uh, it's a quote by Chris Hedges. Uh, we see that in him and how he goes through this experience almost just focused on the adrenaline rush he gets from these uh, you know, uh, experiences of defusing the bombs, taking chances that he probably shouldn't, uh, stepping into situations he probably shouldn't. And at the end of the film, when he's left lost at home, unable to, you know, even just handle shopping in the grocery store and be with his, his uh, you know, his ex-wife and child, he, he goes right back because that's what he's, he's addicted to. He says, you know, we have one thing and that's, this is his one thing. But then you look at, how the war likewise is affecting Eldridge and Eldridge is a, you know, a mess. He's constantly in fear that he's going to die. And he's just convinced himself that, that he's not going to make it through this. And, and we see that through his conversations with his, with his, the doctor and how, how, the, how this story changes him in a way that, you know, he starts getting a little more confident, but then at the end, he's just like, you know, he's, he's, taken and shot and he's just a mess you know he really realizes that this whole thing is a mess and likewise with Sanborn who sees this uh what James represents and and Sanborn starts as a pretty confident soldier he's 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 you know a very 
gung-ho sort of guy but by the end of the film even he is just like you know i don't want to be here anymore i i just got to get out of here and we see how he kind of loses all of his steam after being in this this world of of destruction that they're in and and how it just ruins things yeah uh yeah, I, you know it, it's it's um, uh, it's a funny thing watching the way these guys. I I think the way these guys come together in uh, through uh, darkness, and it. I kept thinking about Renner as Renner's character as James. Uh, it, we keep coming back to these same kinds of guys, uh, driver. Uh, Leon, you know, we've had this conversation before Yeah, where there are these guys who are exceptional at doing one thing and they are absolutely incapable of doing anything else. Yeah. Right. Now you brought up the, the sequence at the end where we see Renner's arc, you know, he ends uh, sort of at the beginning and to get there, he has to go home. He goes home and he sees his wife, Evangeline Lilly, and he sees his son. And, uh, you know, she is fantastic as uh, briefly as we get to see her. Um, you know, she's fantastic as kind of the um, she she's the war widow. He's not dead, but he's not there. Right. Well, and he's she's an ex-wife who hasn't moved who out. Hasn't moved you know, out. She's still but, living in the house. And but, but you know, you that's know, a, how do you for all how, intents and purposes, they're still having this relationship. As he says, you know, she's not dumb. She's just loyal. Yeah, but you know how uh, by the time you get to the end of the film, uh, d- do you really trust him? Right. Do no, you really well, trust yeah, that? Right. Like I, you know, he. Those are the words, but that's not the implication. When you see, you know, the level of kind of her, uh, you know, her portrayal of this this war widow, uh, but what was, uh, gosh, what was I saying? I was talking about the uh, the 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 grocery store scene in particular. Right. You know, it's this sort of clumsy trope through the uh, uh, through the grocery store, and he he doesn't know what what he wants to pick out. He grabs any any cereal uh, because he is so so out of his context out of his world that that he has to the only thing he gets and I, I don't know if it's that he necessarily loves it or that war is a drug uh, necessarily maybe it is I, I've never been to war I can see how it could be portrayed that way or maybe this is a guy who is um, you know who is has found his skill and it happens to be in the context of war and uh, well, and that's that's exactly it. Because as he's talking to his son about the the Jack in the Box, you know, he has that whole conversation about, right. you know, all these things that you love start becoming less important to you. And by the time you're my age, you know, that you're only going to have one or two. Right. And he says, you know, I only have this one thing, and that's yeah. his one thing that he that he does well that means something to him. And you're right, it does happen to be in the context of war. And even though he's put in these situations where you know he sees this young boy used as a, a body bomb and uh they're the, you know developing those attachments to him because of his own son even with that he still isn't able to stay home and be with his own son he has to go back to to doing the one thing that he can do and that means something to him well and look at that uh, look at his his sort of poor attempt to solve the crime right yeah. Uh you know, he tries to to leave the base. He tries to get out of his fatigues and and uh cross the city to to get information on how, you know, his how Beckham the boy would be, 
you know, taken and used as a body bomb. And, and that ultimately is unresolved. He's not... Well, it, he, he's not able to, but then it turns out that Beckham was, wasn't the kid anyway. Right, right. But you see his, yeah. his inability to cope out of that specific context, any, you know, even in war. Uh, he he wasn't able to um, to you know he he was sort of impotent um, yeah. as soon as like he left the guy, base. The guy mistakes him as a CIA agent when he breaks into the guy's house. Exactly. It's, you know he 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 doesn't have uh, the sensibilities to be that CIA agent that would be able to uh, possibly solve that situation. Exactly. Just throwing his gun everywhere, and he ends up being chased away by thrown pots. Yeah. Uh, which which I think just furthers that. Uh, uh, the the complexity of his character, but the simplicity of it at the same time. Yeah, um, he's just that guy. All right. Uh, so the film was uh, filmed in. Uh, uh, well, actually, we should, let's take a step back and talk about Mark Bolt. Uh, so he, you already said he's a freelance journalist. Uh, he was embedded with the American Bomb Squad in uh, in Iraq for two weeks in two thousand four, uh, and uh, spun off. Uh, this story, working with Bigelow uh, for this movie. What do you think of the... Uh, you, we've already said we like the way the story is structured. Uh, what do you think of Bull's uh, general performance as a, as a screenwriter? You know, I, I know he's pulling a lot from uh, the real experiences. and I know there was a lot of controversy um, over... Uh, you know, different lawsuits as far as, you know, stealing the story from uh, some guy's real life and all this sort of stuff. I don't know if, uh, I don't know how much any of that really um, affected the quality of the script, but I, as I said, it's an interestingly structured script and I like the story of the psychology of these people as they journey through these different situations and how each situation kind of presents them with a different um, element um, within their psychological makeup that they have to deal with. I really enjoy that aspect of the story and it, it, it flows so well. I was really paying attention to how sequential it seemed. And, um, I, I think that he really wrote a masterful script here about these interesting characters and the way that war affects people. I, I think there's a lot to the story and, um, I, I, I think that he was deserving of of his Oscar for it. There was, you know, in addition to the controversy about the sort of the story, you know, itself and where the story came from, um, there was uh, there was some pushback. For, I don't know if even that's the right way to characterize it. There was some some pushback from the military community uh, that uh, what they portrayed this, you know, elite three man team. Uh, of of doing in the course, of, particularly of the third act, uh, is absolutely unrealistic. Right, right. In so far as Mark Bowles says he's building this account on real experiences, these experiences, the military experiences that were supposed to be um, sort of the um, you know core of this you know military, essentially military film, uh, were not true. So I I assume you read that as well. What's your it's, you what's know, your take? What's your take on that? How, so what, hard to say. Does it? Uh, does honestly, it? No, no, no. The question the is: the nature bigger. of film is you're telling a story, yes. and you still need to come up with a story that that does still have a flow and has a beginning, a middle, and end. And yes, you could, I guess, just make a, a very straightforward story exactly as it does happen. 
But is that going to be something that people are going to sit in the theater and watch? Is it going to have? Is it going to feel like you're just watching these sequences that happen with nothing tying them together? And I don't know if that's really going to going to work. The um, I I think I'm with you. I you know you watch this movie and and having never I mean I, I've never been there. I and so I, I all I can say is I love I I love the film. I love watching the film. I love what you know the experience the film sort of brings me. Um, and you know, I, I, I can't say that I watched the end of the film when the three, you know, when the three men split up and say, we have to split up to cover more ground, which I think is one of the bigger points of contention for those who have been in the military or, you know, protective services or, you know, any sort of, um, you know, police, uh, that you, you don't, you don't really do that. That's not, that's not a thing. And so, well, yeah, a, and, and, you know, it's, then, it's, <laughs> yeah. if, if there is any action, um, trope that they're pulling that definitely is one you know splitting up the group which really yeah. is more of a horror thing. which is really exactly it's more of a more horror thing but then i i read this this quote on uh, it's actually a quote ebert pulled on his blog from uh mark bowl in vanity fair and i <laughs> think this passage is really funny uh, this is Mark Bull speaking. A lot of people in the military have seen the movie because there are pirated copies all over Iraq. People saw it almost six months ago. A few people have seen it here in film festivals. So far, the response has been good, although I'm sure people will say that we got this or that detail wrong, unless you're going to make Transformers. I literally had a conversation with a guy who was telling me how realistic that movie, Transformers, is in its depiction of the military. I said to the senior military guy, what part of fighting aliens is realistic? And he replied with a completely straight face, if we were going to fight aliens, that's how we would do it. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. That's, that's just fantastic. You know, that ends up being kind of an important point because the military gave exhaustive support to Transformers, uh, yes. including, uh, let's see, the list goes on. Marine hovercrafts, Navy subs, nearly every kind of Army helicopter and Air Force plane in service from the Frisbee Top D3 Sentry to the retired SR-71 Blackbird, uh, all coordinated through a special arrangement with the Department of Defense, including all four branches of the military. That's Transformers, and this film, The Hurt Locker, received none. Yeah. I, uh, that uh, I don't know if that's particularly telling, but uh, you know, at least Transformers got the guns right. <laughs> well, we could talk Transformers. Yeah, there's it definitely <laughs> has a has its military love going on in that film. Um, but you know, here's speaking to the point again, though, that we were talking about. People have to realize that this is a movie and it's not a documentary. We're not following real people in real situation. These are fictional characters doing things that aren't necessarily things that you should be doing. And I think that's kind of the point. When you get to the end and they do run off into the darkness uh, and down the three different alleyways, it, it, we're following fictional characters who are are in a situation, you know, the, in this story, a fictional story, and they are, are you know, doing things that that fit within the characters as they're written. They're not real people. And so the fact that they do something like this, yes, it maybe it isn't realistic as far as what the military would actually do. Again, we're following these fictional characters. That's what these characters uh, decided to do for better or for worse. That's the decisions they made. And obviously it didn't turn out very well. 
Yeah, you know, I I think it it gets to the to you know what Mark Bull was trying to do and and has said you know on a number of occasions that you know the the character particularly of James it's an amalgamation of of you know many characters and many you know real people that he uh, came into contact with in his time there and um, you know from the perspective of writing these characters that are sort of these these amalgam characters right yeah uh, you know you find that what may be realistic for one component uh for one sort of participant in that you know psychosis uh, suddenly is no longer realistic when you put all of the pieces together and uh while you know any individual that bull was thinking about uh you know when he was originally creating james once all of those characters get together in inside that single head suddenly he's taken on a life of his own as you say it's a fictitious it, it is a, a a fictitious story about a fictional character in a very real or realistic situation uh and you know sometimes what they do uh is is not what would be necessarily protocol and exactly. I, that that's kind of how I walked out of it too. It was just sort of giving. That's that's the one where I I I didn't know how I was supposed to feel. What and and I guess the conflict was, you know, are we supposed to look at this as a failure of uh, Bigelow for not sticking to um, the the tapestry of reality that she had so proposed to create, or are we supposed to see it as a, a you know kind of mad success of the the you know character actors who are putting together this. Um, this amazing story and delivering these complex characters in a way that makes their decisions real. And I, I chose for the latter. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I I agree. All right. What else you got? Well, the the film, this was a, uh, a very, a very uh, uh, beautifully shot film the the way that it was shot um i mean it, it's it's war film it's got a lot of ha- uh, handheld uh cinematography um Barry Ackroyd was the uh, cinematographer for the film did a great job capturing a lot of the the heat and the dirt and the grittiness of of you know wartime in the summer in Baghdad did a really great job capturing all of that and um I think that we also need to point out a couple things is all of the amazing slow motion that they used, ultra slow-mo, really. They were shooting it on a phantom camera that shoots 10 to 20,000 frames per second, which is insane. (laughs) But that's how you get those amazing shots where when the bomb goes off and you get the slow-mo of the the rocks just like rising from the ground as the overpressure from the bomb blast, you know, just rips through the the area, or you get like the rust like rattling off of the old car on the side there. Mm-hmm. And it's they're beautiful shots. I mean, it really is a fascinating way to portray what these explosions were really like. And something that they really strived to achieve, um, switching from cinematography but to the actual effects, they really wanted to try achieving um, a much better explosion because there always were so many complaints from military people about how explosions, they called them HMEs, you know, Hollywood movie explosions right. and how they always looked wrong. They were too, too much, you know, fire and red because of the, you know, the gasoline that Hollywood uses in their explosions. So Bigelow and her team really worked to create these bomb blasts that were just black and dirty and full of debris 
um, and and smoke. And they really, I thought they did a great job. I mean, I've never seen a bomb go off, uh, but it looked like uh, a different type of bomb blast than I had seen in uh, virtually any other Hollywood film. And that paired with the amazing cinematography when you get into that ultra slow-mo works really well and really portrays what it probably would be like in a situation where you have this bomb blast that that it's you're it's not just the fire or the heat or things you know hurling at you but also just this the way that a bomb blast affects the air and they call it overpressure and how it just rips through the area and that's it, like what kills guy pierce right at the beginning it's just it, it the blast is so intense it just knocks him out and basically you know blows all the air out of his lungs and almost you know implodes him yeah, it's a it is a stunning sequence. The the sequences you point out, those phantom sequences, and um, and kind of the way they were able to capture. And this is what I thought was was so wonderful that they used that technique not as at least I didn't feel like it was as a gimmick, but it was a way to capture something that otherwise you cannot see. Right. right, you cannot see like an energy wave, and I, I think she like the the vision for capturing when the dust lifts up off that car, when the the you know the particles of of grit and grime kind of float up off the ground, and you watch the you know you watch Guy Pierce flying through through the air. It is a stunning uh, way to open the film, and certainly way to capture those those explosions. What can you talk about the significance, if there is any, of the of the um, the other. Uh, technology they used to film this thing the super 16 um millimeter cameras they had four of these cameras um and um you know do you do you read up on on kind of how they ended up shooting this thing besides the use of the phantom is there anything worth talking about there you know i don't know if there's anything that much other than the fact that they were um they they used multiple cameras uh, Super 16, I would imagine they were because th I mean, essentially, this was an independent film. They produced this. Uh, they Fully raised financed, their own money. Yeah. They found some foreign investors to to put money in, make this film. And um, because of the lower budget and because they were shooting in Jordan, uh, I would imagine that they wanted to get cameras that were cheaper to to uh, to rent, that were easier to transport, all of that. And so that would be my guess as to why they, they used the Super 16s and four of them because they wanted to have a lot of different perspectives. And uh, I would also guess because since they were shooting in Jordan, that way if one of them went down, they still had other cameras that they were able to use. Um, I, I didn't read up on it at all, but that would be my best guess. You know, uh, the uh, certainly makes sense to me. I'm, I'll, I'll give you that one. Okay. Uh, the the thing that I found was interesting um, about uh, is is the editing process. Chris Innes and Bob Morawski, um, they ended up editing on location um, because of the uh, apparent risk uh, sending their undeveloped film through extremely high security airports. Uh, where this the film would would very likely be open, so they you know I my adding to what you said you know taking that super sixteen millimeter film, um, uh, you know and and uh, editing on location and you know it probably makes it easier on a lot of uh, in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, definitely, it definitely would, and, and it's a, I mean I think a lot of films do edit on location nowadays. Um, if they can, when they're when they're shooting hmm. on location overseas, wherever. Right. But um, 
Oh, here, here's the here's the passage. Uh, accordingly, the film was hand carried on a flight by a production assistant from Amman to London. The Super 16 film was transferred to DV Cam in a lab in London. Video dailies transported by plane back to the Middle East, imported into the editing room. The whole journey takes anywhere from three to three days to a week. Described by Innes as the modern day equivalent of shipping via donkey cart. Yeah, that's just fascinating. You know, it's, compare you that know, to the, the things Hobbit. that filmmakers go through sometimes right. to uh, to make this stuff work out. It, and, you know, uh, I I, you know. I remember watching the uh, you know the Lord of the Rings dailies uh, were actually shipped on iPods. Did you see that? Uh, there was that, that making of thing on YouTube. It was fantastic. I'll have to look it up. Where they actually show a guy walking down the street and he has all the dailies. On and it wasn't like an iPhone. I mean, this was an old rotary. You know, used this iPod as a hard drive, uh, and all of the Lord of the Rings was on there. I just don't even know how much footage they could fit on one of those. Things. <laughs> I know, right? Not very much. No, maybe maybe a few frames. <laughs> <laughs> right. Anyway. Um, okay. Yeah. So you know, I think it, just in general, putting the way the way you know when you talk about the four cameras. You really feel that intensity, and uh, I, oh gosh, what, uh, have you looked at the um, at the shot length uh, calculator on this? Uh, no, you know, I didn't on the the cinematrics. Yeah, uh, we we'll put a link to that if we if it's in uh, if they do a let's look at the database. Let's bring it up and see what we have. There it is. Yeah, it looks like the average shot length is about three point four seconds. So it is uh, when you, they're in the middle of the, particularly in the middle of the, um, of the, uh, you know, where they have the, the guy uh, who is chained up with the, uh, the bomb vest yeah. uh, and he has to go in and, uh, uh, and tr attempt to defuse this and is ultimately unsuccessful. Uh, you, you can, you can practically see, um, you know, the cameras at the compass points around them. Uh, and uh, it is very frenetic. Yeah. Um, fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah, it really is. Uh okay. So the movie, uh, as we said, it was financed by um uh, by the filmmakers. Oh uh, well yeah, they found some independent mm -hmm. uh film uh financing overseas somewhere. I'm not right. I'm not sure where they got their money, but you know, some 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 rich people overseas. Ended up uh costing them what do you what did it end up cost them? Uh, uh I see that it cost million? them fifteen million uh to get it made. I see that the uh the total budget was nineteen million. So it doesn't look like they had a lot of money for uh marketing. It looked they they probably used a lot of the um just the buzz that it was getting in all the festivals that it played it in two thousand eight uh to kind of carry it. And then it made fifty. Yeah, it did okay in the states. It actually only made about seventeen million, and internationally uh, about thirty-two point six million. So total, it was about fifty million. On a so, fifteen yeah, million dollar budget, not you bad. You know, the DVD sales have been pretty good, almost thirty-four million, and so it's it's uh, making its money. It's it's a funny thing that we are talking about this movie. Like this is this is uh, let's see, in my you know, I think what do I have it in my my flick chart? I think it's at thirty, maybe it's thirty. Um, twenty-eight. I've got it at twenty-eight on my my flick chart, personal one. I I really like this movie. I really really do. Um, I I think it's terrific. And when we're talking about the budget and the and the box office, it 
really surprises me that those numbers are kind of actually as low as they are. Like, this is a movie I feel like should be seen by more people. Yeah. Right? I mean, does it... I, it 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 definitely feels like uh, a film that, for whatever reason, just didn't. Uh, it got all the critical attention, but it just was something that uh, didn't draw people in. I think again, it boiled down to the structure of the story and how it's much more of a character uh, psychological portrait sort of film than it is a a typical Hollywood war film. If it had been a typical Hollywood war film, yeah, it probably would have made tons of money. As it stands, yeah, yeah. I think it, you know, uh, I think Entertainment Weekly did a an article a few years ago about um, Oscar, the films that have won Best Picture, and how much they actually made. And I think this is one of the lowest grossing Best Picture winners in the last uh, or, or since since the Oscars have been around. I think this and Crash were the the two lowest grossing. Uh, films that uh, won Best Picture. Mm. It's such a shame. And, and, you know, I think uh, Catherine Bigelow tweets uh, would support that on January 27th. She said, uh, apropos, lunch with friends in the Valley. Catherine Bigelow, January 27th. So I think, you know, you see that that kind of she that that really uh, bears out. Yeah. Yeah. She uh, sells it. Where does this sit for you on, on Flickchart? How's this rate for you on your top 100? Tell it me it's made well. the top 100. It well, I, I don't know right now because I'm not logged into my Flickchart. I'm logged into oh, our Flickchart. So I'm sorry. I, I can't tell you. All right. Uh, did you, and, and before we jump directly to that, I am uh, curious if you, uh, uh, did you look at the, the new spreadsheet for this one? The new spreadsheet, the, the spreadsheet the that we've been spreadsheet? talking about, the budget spreadsheet, the finished minute. I have it on here. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm bringing the it Hurt up right Locker. Now. I, we did a new uh, spreadsheet for the cost of films, um, uh, and then breaking it down into their per minute, uh, how much they cost per minute, and how much they made per minute. And the Hurt Locker uh, cost, I said, fifteen million, with about four million for for. Uh, prints and advertising. So the budget per minute was about one hundred forty-five thousand dollars, and with with making nearly fifty million dollars, the gross per minute three hundred seventy-nine thousand dollars, two hundred twenty-seven, and total profit per minute was two hundred thirty-four thousand one hundred eighty-nine dollars. And uh, let's see for uh, for perspective, that beat Shaun of the Dead. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it, did beat, it did beat out. It Shaun beat Shot of the Dead, yes, but not did. quite. Thank you for smoking. It turns out it's uh, Hurt Locker is at number forty-one uh, on our uh, next real movie cost per minute breakdown. It helps. It helps to have a longer movie. Shaun of the Dead's only ninety-nine minutes, and and even though it only costs twelve million to make, that uh, it doesn't get spread per minute quite as nicely. Yeah, we, just because this is kind of a new thing that we're just doing, and we're going to publish this spreadsheet. I I haven't right. We're, that's our plan. We're going to put it a link somehow. To the show. Yeah, we we'll, have to, I don't know how to publish a you right, know, so active spreadsheet, but we'll figure something out. We've we've got that. We're gonna we're gonna publish this on the site, so you can go check this out. Uh, you know, um, Andy's working. I think we've got uh, Sarmento's jumping in and working on this because he's. He's a another data guy too, and I, you know, in our exchange in email, uh, uh, we, you know, you, uh, you discovered something that was just plain horrifying, and I think I would like you to, I would like you to, to say it. 
of all the films that we've talked about on our show, starting, uh, you know, well, this is episode, what is this, the 61st film that we've discovered or discussed? Um, yeah, somewhere Of there. all of those films that we've talked about, the film that has made the most money per finished minute of the film, and I know this is kind of a silly way to look at, at grosses, <laughs> but it's fun. The number one film is Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. <laughs> which made a profit per minute of four million three hundred fifty-seven thousand thirty-four dollars. Oh wow! Yes, and and people wonder why Hollywood keeps turning out more and more. Well, and look at the top. Of, uh, look at the top. Bad big budget films. Look at the top that five. That is why Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Crystal Skull, Jaws at number two, at three point six million profit per minute. Raiders of the Lost Ark at number three at three point one million profit per uh, per minute, and uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom at two at uh, two point four. Yeah. Uh, un real money in this business so it sounds like we're on the wrong side of the uh, wrong side of the business that's what i'm gonna say definitely definitely uh what else do you have you've always got something what's your thing just um you know to the authenticity of this film i found it really fascinating that they made this in they started shooting mid-july and uh, they shot it in amon jordan and uh, Jordan in the summer is uh, as hot, if not hotter, than Phoenix, Arizona. And they were shooting this when the temperatures were, uh, the average temperature, I think they said, was 115 degrees when they were shooting. And poor Jeremy Renner and Guy Pierce both had to wear that that suit, that, uh, you know, the suit that's, you know, they call the Hurt Locker. Um, not that they say that in the film, but that's what the title of the film is referring to, the suit that they wear. And that suit is 80 pounds. It's an 80-pound Kevlar suit. And these poor actors had to act in an 80-pound Kevlar suit in 115-degree temperatures. And I tell you, I just I got a feel for them. Sometimes I think some of the things that actors get to do are, are uh, amazing, and I would love to partake. And then there are stories about that. And I just don't think I'd want to be in that suit in that temperature. I've been in that temperature in very light clothing, and it's horrible. I can't yeah. imagine what those guys were going well, through. Well, and, and you know, I was thinking about that as you're watching that, you know, watching Guy Pierce and watching Jeremy Renner and then in those suits. And even even just not in the suits, just in straight-up, you know, fatigues, uh, the, these guys, they, they look really good. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and I say good, they, they look, you know. They look like they're, they, I, I don't know if I, <laughs> I don't know, I, not acting in front of a camera. I don't know if I could convince, you know, uh, anybody that I was, you know, being able, I was able to be taken seriously in that kind of heat. I just, I, I just couldn't do it. I'm not, yeah. I'm not wired for it. They did a fantastic job. Uh, from what I understand, they absolutely hated one another. They were having a horrible time. That was very <laughs> difficult. Uh, and I think it, it shows in the film <laughs> in a really positive way. That is hilarious, and the film, film, you know, it, you know, we talked about uh, critically being received well. We didn't mention all of the Oscars that it, it did win. It was nominated for nine Oscars, and it won for six of them: Best Picture, Best Director, which was the first um, time a woman actually won Best Director, um, and I believe Catherine Bigelow was actually the fourth woman to have been nominated. The others were, uh, who were they? I had it here. I think it was. Uh, 
Lena Vertmuller uh, for Seven Beauties in 1976, Jane Campion for The Piano in 1993, and Sofia Coppola for Lost in Translation in 2003. So only four women have been nominated for Best Director, and Catherine Bigelow was the first to win. Um, It also won, Mark Bull won for Best Original Screenplay, it won for Best Sound Editing, Best Sound Mixing, Best Film Editing, and then it lost, Jeremy Renner lost Best Actor to uh, Jeff Bridges, in Crazy Heart, it lost original score and it lost best cinematography. Do you think the Jeremy Renner, uh, Jeff Bridges decision was uh, the right one? Uh, you know, I love Jeff Bridges. And I, he was great in Crazy Heart. And he hadn't won an Oscar. And, I, you know, it's not like I want to say that, you know, it's a conciliatory sort of award for him because I thought he did a great job. But um, I just kind of felt it was Jeff Bridges' time, and you know, Jeremy Renner was the 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 new kid on the block. So it was it, his getting nominated was winning enough for him. Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna I I agree with that. Although you know, at it's at some you know sometimes you're watching that the watching him read the uh, response, and you just want you just wanted to go to the right guy. Just yeah. for the just for the portrayal of the film, no politics, no nothing. Because you're right, Bridges was great in Crazy Heart. I he, absolutely, uh, and and yet, uh, you know, we talked uh, last week about stories that really need to be told, and I think this is just you know here's here's one that needed to be told and was executed and uh, brilliantly, and the actors acquitted themselves brilliantly, and it was. Um, it was not only a joy to watch, it was painful to watch. It's an intelligent and muscular, uh, movie about war insofar it is as it is uh, not a war movie. Uh, it, it is a movie about what happens to people, uh, and, and, you know, what people are able to do, uh, in that environment. And I, I, it was, it's very moving. It, it is. Um, I, you know, I'm, I mean, it's 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 always a tough pick. I mean, awards are always tough because I mean, it's the same year that George Clooney was up for Up in the Air, and Colin Firth in A Single mm-hmm. Man, and Morgan Freeman in Invictus. You know, mm-hmm. I see Invictus I know. is I, the I don't know Invictus, who I would have picked if I in, were voting. Invictus is the one that that would have given me trouble. I, I never saw it. Um, oh, it was great, great. Yeah, I didn't hear it was very good. Oh, it so. was great. They're all wrong. Focus. But uh, yeah, you know, I you know the the award that stuck out for me was best score. I mean, I do think the music works well in the context of the film, which is probably why it was nominated. That being said, it's not a very listenable score. It's not something that you can put on and listen to it. It's by Marco Beltrami and Buck Sanders. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I because of that, I don't know if I would have felt that it was worth getting nominated i think you know up one and i think up's score uh, by mike michael giacchino was definitely a stellar mm-hmm. score um that guy yeah, michael giacchino he, he doesn't uh doesn't do much wrong anymore he's pretty good yeah. uh, but then you, know, you also had avatar james horner and alexandre desplat and fantastic mr fox and mm-hmm. uh, hans zimmer and sherlock holmes i think uh, you know, I felt Hurt Locker, uh, there probably were better films released that year that should have been nominated. And and Hurt Locker, I, I, you know, it to me, it felt like one of those awards that was just kind of thrown out that um, they were just at a point just kind of throwing more nominations their way when they really, really didn't uh, didn't deserve it. I yeah. didn't think. Yeah. You know that uh, Giacchino, by the way, Space Mountain. Did I tell you that? 
Oh, I didn't know that he, he did the new Space Mountain music. He, he wrote the soundtrack to the new Space Mountain, and you know what it is? The Incredibles. <laughs> it's nice. so well, you good. Know, it's just Disney like he does all the Incredibles, so it's not like he had to go. Uh, I know he didn't have to go to go back much. to the well that very very far for that one. Yeah. Uh, all right. I uh, it's yeah. I think you're right about the music though. Uh, Beltrami and Sanders. Congratulations. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. yes. Uh, I I think uh, I, I think back to. Uh, Catherine, I think I need to just um, we need to to go back to that well in particular, and and this one I think is this this may be um, uh, the most important tweet uh, in her tweet stream at Catherine A Bigelow, April nine, two thousand twelve. Tip to directors: Your ego can only get you into trouble. Catherine Bigelow, April nine, two thousand twelve. Yeah, she's a deep one. She hasn't. She doesn't actually tweet all that much. It's really disappointing. <laughs> really, I'm not going to lie to you about tell. it. It's really, really disappointing. I, I don't know if you've been able to pick up. I'm, I'm really disappointed. Uh, all right. Uh, anything else uh, that you have on this one? I don't think so. Uh, you know, we've been going. This has been a long one. Yeah. It, well, you know, it's a good film. It yeah. warrants a good conversation. Uh, next. We're going to uh, hit her latest film that's just being released. We're going to go uh, see Zero Dark Thirty, and uh, I am very much looking forward to this one. It's going to be a uh, uh, it's going to be a great film. Now, does that open for you on the fourth? It opens tomorrow. I'm going to go see it. Uh, all right, all right, all right. I don't I don't actually believe it op- uh, opens here yet, so I'm going to have to wait another week. I think. That I'm gonna, sucks for I'm gonna you. check that out. Uh, but very excited to see this movie. And I, I'm also very excited to see, you know, the turnaround that has come from Catherine Bigelow because this movie and with you know what I'm hearing about Zero Dark Thirty, um, you know, uh, this is a, a director with uh hopefully, gosh, a lot more uh to deliver to us in terms yeah. of really terrific films. And and finally I think we're through. We're through all the other just nonsense, and now we can get to some real substance. Yeah, I think she's made a smart transition in yeah. her filmmaking career and has found a way to take that action sensibility that she has and put it to use telling meaningful stories. Yep. So so one last thing to do. Yes, let's do it. All right, Hurt Locker or Panic Room? Hurt Locker, what? I know, I, I have to read them. The Hurt Locker or Joe vs. the Volcano? <laughs> as far as watchability and and how often i would put it in i would vote for joe versus the volcano yeah. but if we're voting on on actual film quality yes. hurt i locker. definitely am gonna it's do a, hurt locker uh, you're totally right yeah the hurt locker or all the president's men boy that's a tricky one that's a tricky one. I I may have to say uh, the hurt locker just because you can hear everything that everyone says. <laughs> <laughs> I I think I'm gonna pick the Hurt Locker too. All right. The Hurt Locker or Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind? Hurt Locker. I don't I don't have to think very hard. I loved Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, but see, I think I would go Eternal Sunshine. Are you serious? Are you on I, the yeah. fence about it? Because... I think that that one has really fascinating psychology, uh, you know, study of character and love and relationships. Uh, I, no doubt. I think I would pick Eternal Sunshine. But but would you, are you like on the spectrum? Are you just, I think I would kind of. No, I, I, I I, I'm saying I would pick Eternal Sunshine. 
So how do we do? We've never had to do a tiebreaker. I know what we, don't, that? we don't have a third voice in this. How do you even? I don't even know how to get to the other side of this. <laughs> All right, on the uh, count of three, I want you to punch yourself in the neck, and I'm going to do the same thing. And whoever whoever stands up first. <laughs> no. I don't know if that's going to work out. All right, I you know I um. I'm well, we'll to, okay, go ahead. Uh, we we'll, we'll, let's let's for now. It's the Hurt Locker is oh. already at number eight on our list. Above All right, so it, you're going to say, "Let's for now, let's just take mine because <laughs> my vote just for now." And I know we'll go back and redo it. Okay, just for that, we'll pick yours. <laughs> All right, the Hurt Locker. Why? <laughs> All right, the Hurt Locker or Jaws? <laughs> I'm going Jaws. I'm going Jaws. The Hurt Locker or. Uh, oh nope, that's it. It's it's number four on our. I chart. I feel good about number four. I think it should be number five. <laughs> <laughs> All right, this is this uh this this may end up being the if this is our legendary dispute, I'll take it. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> We've been friends a long time, but we're gonna die split on this. <laughs> That's what I'm gonna write. I'm gonna, actually, I'm gonna write that on my uh, on my tombstone. <laughs> it was the Hurt Locker. No, I'll say just say number four, sunshine. Hurt Locker. Holy <laughs> <laughs> awesome! Oh, that's grim. Hey, generations, generations from now, the kids will be going. They'll be what? doing gravestone rubbings <laughs> to try to solve the mystery. <laughs> what fueled this great debate? <laughs> Totally, I love it. All right. Yeah. I got nothing else to talk to you about. No, I think we had a great time. We spoiled it thoroughly. Thoroughly spoiled. We stand by our conviction to spoil. Yes, yes. And uh, I'll catch you uh, I'll catch you next week, and we'll do uh, Zero Dark. I am very much looking forward to it. Good night, Andrew. Ciao. You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been like decades. I would much rather use Kindle, or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. It's the way to go. We covered a lot of great movies that started as books or plays in season two, like Powell and Pressburger's The Red Shoes and The African Queen from our series about legendary cinematographer Jack Cardiff. The Born Identity, Supremacy, Ultimatum, and Legacy. Jaws, Big Fish, The Thing, Bullet, Drive. The Maltese Falcon, Treasure of the Sierra Madre, Moneyball. Ah, Moneyball. The Prestige, The Town, The Killing. So many great movies from so many great sources. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they are so annoying and have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things wherever they see fit. We listened when you said you didn't like them. So now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it. I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out 
and you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. Thank you.